The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. One of the nice things about studying history is that as complex as the issues can be, at least the basic facts are fairly straightforward. It's not rocket science. Well, except tonight it is. As we learn about the U.S. Navy's top secret program during the Civil War to build a rocket-powered torpedo. This story, never previously reported, is the subject of a book called C Minor, Major E.B. Hunt's Civil War Rocket Torpedo, 1862-1863, and we'll talk to the person who discovered this topic, Chuck Veet, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex here on Oxford Street in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University or using their equipment or taking up their office space or their time. It's the evening, uh, just on my own hook, but still not speaking for the university just in case anyone wants to imagine that that's the case. And my guest likewise will speak only for himself as we always do 
here on Civil War Talk Radio. It is a beautiful evening in the spring of 2016. It is balmy outside. It's the first week back after spring break, and uh, everything is, is pleasant on campus. The students are back. Not all the students, uh, our students are back, but other universities are taking their break this week. So my daughter from Chapel Hill is away visiting uh, our other daughter, and my wife has gone with them. Her school's on spring break this week. So I'm living the wild Civil War talk radio bachelor life here on Oxford Road, talking to you instead of loading the dishwasher or what I anything else I might normally be doing, watching Wheel of Fortune perhaps at this hour, on a regular night instead, uh, talking Civil War, planning my NCAA tournament bracket, otherwise uh, thinking about the quiet days ahead. It was interesting to look at what was happening uh, two years ago or so when uh, tonight's guest was first on the program, and I pulled my notes from that show, and... Uh, in those days of chairing the history department, I saw that very day we'd gotten notice of a 3% budget cut halfway through the school year and to reduce our funds further from money we'd already spent. It was really uh, a drastic time. I'm not saying things have gotten better. I don't know that they have. Uh, they've stabilized maybe temporarily. Uh, we will see what happens with the next budget, but uh, it's good not to be the king uh, in times like this and good to just be focusing on the history of the Civil War era, which we'll do tonight, which I got the very pleasurable opportunity to do the last few weeks with the Lifelong Learning Program here in Greenville, North Carolina, chatting with uh, folks about Abraham Lincoln, and uh, maybe next year we'll do a similar program on a different uh, Civil War era topic. Uh, we'll keep talking about the topic this year, uh, next week, with Martha Hodes, author of Morning Lincoln, uh, the discussion of the, the death of Abraham Lincoln. Following that on March 30th with Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman in her novel Broken Promises. We don't often do historical fiction. I've had people send me historical fiction, self-published 700-page novels of historical fiction and really if, if you cannot get a publisher to read it for you first uh, it's probably unlikely that I will do the same uh, but once in a while there's an exception and this book uh, by Professor Hoffman promises to be interesting and then on April 6th uh, Sheridan Butch Berenger has written a book about an ancestor of his General Berenger of the North Carolina Cavalry called Fighting for General Lee so we've got a lot of good things coming up. Um, uh, Dave Powell's Chickamauga tour has come and gone. I hope some people got to go on that. If you did, send me a note. Let me know how it was. Coming up in the month of May, May 21 through 29, is the This Hallowed Ground tour of battlefields in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, uh, sponsored, uh, produced by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Please Think about that if you have a week off at that time and want to see the battlefields uh, in pleasant company with uh, nice uh, transportation and good hotels and 
uh, and me to point out interesting people. I try to line up folks to meet us at some of these battlefields who can share uh, stories, and, and I'll, I'll tell you what I know, and we have uh, a mutually educational and interesting time every year, so uh, consider that if you're able to do it. To stay on top of this and other events, there's always www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date, tells us who's going to be on the show. You can also buy books like the ones we'll hear about tonight uh, and others by clicking on the links found on that website, and it takes you to Amazon, buy the book there, costs you nothing extra, but the click-through helps the website with a few pennies, which are always welcome. And, of course, you can always use the PayPal button there to donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. Even if you don't have a PayPal account, they can magically extract your money. Uh, it goes here. Uh, I've learned not to say too much about what I do with the money, other than to assure you it's not tax-deductible. I don't promise to do anything good, but nothing illegal. Uh, but again, looking at my notes from two years ago, I made a joke about car repairs one week, and the next week, transmission fell out of the van. So uh, no jokes, no comments, just just send money. Well, this week, our guest uh, has been on the show before. And normally, uh, I have an informal policy of letting uh, as many as five years elapse between return visits. But rules are made to be bent if not broken and once in a while a book comes along so intriguing that I cannot resist reading it and telling you about it, sharing it with you and bringing the author on to talk to both of us. And that's the case here. Uh, the author is Chuck Veet and I have to re- make sure I'm saying that correctly so let's bring him on. Chuck, are you there? Yes, I am here, Jerry. Thank you. And, and and do I have the last name correct again? I should have listened to last It's year's reasonably show. close. It's two syllables, Viet. Viet, much better. I'll, I'll get that correct. <laughs> um, well, welcome back to the show. Uh, you and I met at the, the Plymouth, North Carolina Living History uh, program uh, a few years back. You had a tent there. We got talking about stuff, and uh, you showed me some of the books you'd written. They looked really interesting, so we, we got to chat, and uh, then... It's been some years since then, so how have you been the last couple of years? Anything uh, new I've, on the I've horizon? I've been fine. Well, the newest thing, of course, is, is the C minor book, um, plus some other research that I'll, I'll turn out in the next year or two, but uh, otherwise, just steady as she goes. Very, well, let, let, let's talk about the, the right into it, the C minor book. And for those listening, it's C-S-E-A, uh, new word, minor, M-A-N-E-R. So it's not the uh, uh, musical... Key uh, C minor, like B major, like B minor, uh, uh, you know, C major chord. It's it's not C minor, but S E A M I N E R, which was the name of this this project. There's not a lot in Civil War history about which just about zero has been written, but I don't know if anybody else has written anything about this project. Uh, how did you find out about it? Well, this, this project was beyond top secret. I don't know what adjectives English has, ultra double top secret. This thing just basically didn't exist. I stumbled across it because one of the things I was doing with my local uh, committee to commemorate the, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War was every morning for four very long years, 
I would begin each day by sitting down with a cup of coffee, transcribing a thousand words from newspapers north or south, and then posting them on a weekly basis on, on a website. And that information is still out there, and it's free to the public. I'll happily sell you the books if you want. But, uh, you know, as a historian or a librarian, I'd prefer that in print. But you can access all the information. And on November 30th, and it must have been about 2011 because I was ahead of myself, I ran across something from the spring of 1862. And it's in slow news day. There's not much going on. And I ran across a headline that said, what is it, in quotes. And I thought, that's unusual. And I glanced at it, didn't pay much attention, until about the fourth or fifth line down was the magic word submarine. And for a naval historian, that got my attention. And it just snowballed from there. It took a lot of digging, uh, a lot of different odd places to find hints about this, this project, if you will. And, but that, that silly headline was what really started everything, just by reading through the newspapers. The phrase, what is it, uh, as a single word or hyphenated word, is, is sort of 19th century slang. Uh, some listeners will be familiar with the cartoon, the political cartoon of uh, Lincoln with this, this uh, creature, a uh, person, actually, uh, uh, that had been brought over by, by uh, P.T. Barnum and was being displayed uh, as if uh, merely a creature under the title, uh, the, the what is it, and so there's, there it is, there's that headline. It could have been P.T. Barnum exhibit, could have been any number of things, but it's some kind and of submarine. Right, it's actually Barnum who gets used with the phrase most often. We see it, of course, as a question. There should be a question mark after it, the what is it. In reality, mm-hmm. anything that was unexplainable, uh, some new plant that bore characteristics of a variety of different ones and no one could identify it, was referred to as a botanical what is it. Barnum had a lot of quote-unquote what is it. And as this device, or rather the testbed for the device, is being built in the Brooklyn Navy Yard in the spring of 1862, it literally is a box. And believe it or not, at the height of the war, spies notwithstanding, people could transit the yard just to go out for a Sunday stroll. And one of the sailors who's going back to the receiving ship in the yard looks at the box for a while, decides there's not a single thing that's nautical about it, takes a piece of chalk and writes, what is it on the side? And he may have meant it as a question, but it was a nominative, a noun that stuck. And even in official Navy records, it's referred to as the what is it. So that is the name of the test bed. Of course, people don't realize that that is just the test platform. It's going to be scrapped after the thing is devised or, or completed. And uh, they, they think it's going to be armor-plated. It's going to get an engine somehow. It's going to be, you know, sunk at the bottom of a river to fire upwards. It, it's all manner of screwy ideas based on absolutely no information whatsoever. So, so the what is it, as far as the public knows, is a, a wooden box. I'm recollecting a roughly 12 by 16 feet. Uh, right. Uh, people liken it to how they put it, a dry goods case, uh, you know, supersized, these are modern word, or mm-hmm. the type of stalls are built on board ships to send horses overseas to Europe, things like that. There's nothing even remotely similar to it in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and nobody, including 99.9% of the men working at the yard or in the Navy, know anything about it at all. Well, let's set the stage here uh, this is an era when naval technology is undergoing rapid change. Mm-hmm. Men have fought in sailing ships with smoothbore, muzzle-loading cannon for the last 150 years. But since the beginning of the, the first quarter of the 19th century, you've got all kinds of new, new things happening. You've got steam engines, you've got screw propellers, 
got rifled cannon, you've got explosive shell. Uh, and so, so that's why they, they yeah, believe this is just something brand new. You know, they, they figure this is something brand new. We don't know what it is yet. The public and the newspaper hacks especially theorize like crazy. Uh, one technology that we don't talk much about during the Civil War that they had, they had the means to accomplish this, they just never carried through on it, were uh, steam-powered compressed air guns. That sort of technology has been around since the Napoleonic time. I believe the Austrian army actually had a regiment of uh, Girondani air rifle, riflemen, if you will. The problem was that, well, you could get X number of, of shots out of one gun for a furious initial volley. Once you were empty of air, it took a while to pump the thing up again. It was also very fragile. At the beginning of the war, there was a, a patent taken out in the south, I believe Louisiana, for actually could have been a reasonably viable weapon, a steam-powered air cannon which was so powerful that they thought, well, if we need a hurried trench, we just aim it down and blast a hole in the ground. It wouldn't have been a bad idea. There was no smoke to show where it fired from, uh, not much of a report, and because it was on a steam tractor or a locomotive that didn't require tracks, it was basically mobile artillery. So the public thought this must be going to receive an air cannon and be placed at the bottom of a river somewhere like the James or off Charleston and shoot upwards to blow holes in hulls and things like that. They recognize that they have no idea what it is. And so they'll theorize, but they're accepting the fact that this is undoubtedly some brand new invention. But again, they have no basis whatsoever for understanding what it is, because they're looking at just the wooden box, not the weapon itself. So in this era, then people are, are ripe for, for uh, not suspicion, but uh, speculation. They're thinking about what this could be. Uh, they don't know what it's going to be. They, they know... One thing they do know is that there's a need for a new kind of weapon because in 1862, as, as every listener knows, you have the Battle of the Monitor in the Virginia. You have the first uh, mm-hmm. battle of ironclad ships, and neither one is able to damage the other uh, fatally or even substantially. So now we're in an era where the technology is changing rapidly, and apparently the defensive technology has leaped ahead of the uh, attacker's technology because there's no way to easily sink an ironclad ship uh, if you try to breach the armor. Right. But, As the war goes on, it gets to be a vicious circle that continues easily through World War II and I guess in a way up through today where the armor gets better, so the guns get better. So the armor gets better, so the guns get better. And of course, it's always a trade-off with how effective or how big each of those can be versus how much it weighs and which parts do you armor because you don't want to have a boat that's so heavily armored that it can't make very fast speed or it's going to sink or turn turtle. You can't make the gun so big that it unbalances the ship. Uh, It's a constantly ongoing battle to decide which of these is going to be the best. And that will evolve during the Civil War. At this point, though, everyone recognizes that, wow, gee, the armor's so, so heavy now, we can't get through it. But there's an Achilles heel. And Achilles heel, of course, is four feet down under the water, four to five feet, that's where the armor belt ends. You've got nothing but a wooden hull that far down. That's the Achilles heel of every single ironclad on the planet because they're not armoring the hulls. You couldn't. Again, it's a weight thing. The ship would just founder in the water or move along at one or two knots. It'd be useless. Reaching so that the, Achilles heel... I'm sorry, please go ahead. Yeah, well, That's what we're going to talk about. How do you reach that Achilles heel... We're going to take a short break and come back, find Mm -hmm. out who in the world was trying to do that, and then look at what progress is made with the C minor project. 
Uh, we're talking today with Chuck Viet, the author of C Minor, Major E.B. Hunt's Civil War Rocket Torpedo, 1862-1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Chuck Viet, author of C Minor. It's a story of the top-secret project to build a rocket-powered uh, torpedo weapon by the U.S. Navy during the Civil War, so top secret that very few records have survived, but uh, Chuck began by telling us how a, a chance newspaper article tipped him off uh, that there was something being done in the Brooklyn Navy Yard in 1862 that that uh, no one at the time knew anything more than to call it the, the what is it, and it, it bore some looking into. So, Chuck, we were discussing the fact that there's a need for naval technological change. Uh, the advent of ironclad ships means it's hard to defeat the enemy unless you could get underneath the armor, uh, hit someone below the waterline. And I was fascinated to read uh, your account of inventors who had tried to take a, a shipboard cannon and somehow fire it underwater. Uh, how, how did those experiments work? Well, it depends on how you define the word work. Um, could they be effective? <laughs> Actually, they could. Now, bear in mind how close Monitor and Merrimack actually were to each other during the battle. They are literally brushing the paint off each other's sides. In that situation, that close of proximity, an underwater gun could have blown a hole, a hole in the enemy's hull, no problem. The British had proven that a 110-pounder Armstrong gun could fire 20 feet through the water 
using incredible force. That shell should have gone thousands and thousands of yards. It makes the 20 feet and could go through both sides of a target hull with the intervening water. So you could force an aerial shell through the water. The trouble is the vast, vast majority of its energy is being just totally sucked up by trying to penetrate water, which is about 784 times as dense as air. So that's, that's the issue. If you're in close, you can, you can do that. It's just dangerous to get in that close to the problem. Um, again, a spar torpedo is another answer, but you have to get so perilously close, very, very dangerous. There are a couple of other options that people are you know, working on and all that, rockets being one of them. Well, on, on the gun question, there was one you described uh, that an American inventor was working on during the war itself. And if I understood correctly, it actually fired the gun above deck and then somehow rerouted the projectile to come out underwater. Is that even possible? That, that's what I believe. Uh, Whitaker's device, um, it impressed the Secretary of the Navy and a whole slew of Navy engineers. Uh, it, was, it was so potentially valuable that his captain aboard the Kearsarge back in 62 actually had him sent home to go present the, the plans and all that. And they went so far as to begin to construct the delivery tube and the weapon, which was just a standard nine-pounder, uh, on, a, on the, I believe it was the Ozark, uh, ironclad out on the, the Western Rivers. We don't have any diagrams or any better description. He describes it as a conduit or the, the it's some type of mechanical device that's being fitted onto or into the hull of the Ozark as she's being built. But there's no diagram that survives or good description. I don't believe that the cannon itself is on a lower deck. I think it's on a top deck, and it then fires down some sort of conduit. Whether it fires from inside the hull or outside, the biggest problem is if you fire any kind of shell, whether it's a torpedo or an aerial shell, in a dry environment, it has to overcome the shock of hitting the plane of water. And that sucks a lot of energy right out of it right then and there. How Whitaker was going to do this, we're not really sure. Again, no diagrams. But his device, again, would have worked if you're within spitting distance. Uh, you know, it's hard to, to remember sometimes. This is the, the era, or very close to the era, of Jules Verne, of, of the, what uh, has evolved into the steampunk uh, ethos today, but the idea of, of science fiction of the 19th century, of, of creating incredible new technologies that uh, that were just being dreamed up by authors, and of course some of them end up being becoming real and others are still fanciful, but they didn't know that. They didn't know which ones were going to go where, and so we, we see the, I, I read about your description of firing a, a gun from on the deck of a ship and somehow the cannonball comes out lower down and changes its direction but doesn't lose its velocity uh, enough so that it can still go through water and then hit an enemy ship. Seems impossible, but, you know, flying uh, around the world seemed impossible too, and we've done I would that. Act, I'd, actually reverse, I'd actually reverse what you, you had said a minute ago about how authors wrote these things and they became real. What I've learned in studying Civil War, Navy history especially, is that oftentimes these things were real and then authors wrote about them. Hmm. And then they get rediscovered. <laughs> well, well, that's certainly the case here. Um, this is a good place to jump into the story of Major E.B. Hunt. Um, who was this guy and, and how did he get involved in the story? 
Well, Hunt was born about 1824 along the Genesee River in upstate western New York. Uh, by all accounts, Hunt was, he'd probably been on a psychiatrist's couch nowadays. He was driven. Uh, later in life, he would say that he realized that his, his biggest character flaw was that he never relaxed, that he wasn't good socially, that he would devote himself totally to work. He had a very happy marriage, a, a loving wife. How he pulled that off, I have no idea, because he was he would oftentimes put both their children and his wife sort of like, leave me alone, I have to do this work now, this is important and imperative. But he, he is maniacally driven to work constantly. He is blessed with a large, healthy physique. The guy is, is very, very strong. He has incredible stamina. Uh, he's a big dude from, from all accounts, and he is absolutely brilliant. This fellow is... It, had he not gone to West Point, and we mentioned the West Point thing, he had about a third-grade education, when he filled out the application for West Point, they figured, okay, fine, yeah, he's got a recommendation. He's got, you know, a state senator vouching for him. Just, he's not going to make it. The guy passed all his tests, and he graduates number two in his class from West Point four years later, about 1846. The guy is brilliant. He has a list of papers that he has published and read at the very recently founded American Association for the Advancement of Science every single year, and he writes on a wide, wide variety of topics. Uh, the fellow is brilliant, and his eventual demise is a loss not so much for the Union as for the whole country. The things that he would have discovered or had discovered and didn't get to write about could have changed history. Uh, aside from C-minor, which he intentionally kept top secret, his friends said the only other topic that he never wrote upon because he would not publish until he was satisfied with his entire theory was his theory of molecular physics, which from what fellow scientists understood, basically explained the universe and every single thing in it. <laughs> the unified <laughs> but field. But he wasn't quite so happy. We've got yeah. it all. Uh, <laughs> that, wow. That's it. Uh, the fellow was, was quite brilliant. Uh, he got involved in this, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here or not. No, go ahead. If I am. Go ahead. He writes a letter you can jump into this story almost any point, but he writes a letter when he's in Washington on his way to the front finally. He's been stationed down at Key West, finishing up uh, Fort Taylor, and he's been itching to get to the front. It's now the spring of 1862. Hunt feels like he's shirking because he's, he's finishing up this fort, which is an important thing to do. Uh, that fort, along with Jefferson, basically is a stranglehold on the Gulf because the channel goes right through there. So it's not unimportant work, but Hunt wants to get to the front. He's finally got his orders to go to Virginia. He's in D.C., and he posts a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, on the 28th of March. And his letter to Wells really doesn't tell Wells anything except, I've got an idea, revolutionize naval warfare. And this is something that you know Wells gets about six times a day. Every time the mm -hmm. guy brings in letters, there's another whiz-bang idea. And I'd like to talk to you about it. Well, what gets his attention, even if he doesn't know Hunt by reputation, are the ten names that Hunt pens as signatories, people with whom he shared aspects of this plan. These five sailors and five soldiers reads like a who, who, who's who of the scientific community, top of the class. We're talking of the five soldiers that include McClellan uh, and a variety of others. They all graduate one, two, or five from West Point. The sailors include someone like Wilkes, even though he's, you know, in the doghouse now for the Trent Affair, is a recognized naval scientist. It's the secretary, assistant secretary of the Navy, uh, the naval doctors in there, a couple other engineers. It's an incredible list of people who are vouching for what Hunt is about to propose. But again, doesn't really say anything. The one real gem in the letter is Hunt tells us when he had the original idea. He says, I've been working on this for six months. 
if we go back six months before this March 28th letter, what we find is on the 12th of October, and bear in mind, Hunt is in Key West, which is the, the uh, it's a major port for the U.S. Navy at that time to a repair base. On the 12th of October, the first ironclad in the Americas, the Manassas, comes down from New Orleans and gets into a scuffle with USS Richmond, a number of other smaller ships, damages the Richmond, and they limps her way back up to, to New Orleans. The Richmond doesn't sink or anything, but she's damaged enough she has to go for repairs to Key West. And at Key West, the sailors undoubtedly described to Hunt what just happened at the head of passes, or Southwest Pass. Hunt stops and thinks this through. And again, tell me if I'm getting ahead of where you want to steer me here. But Hunt listens to their account of the battle. And of course, the sailors have been trained, okay, bigger guns, better armor, bigger guns, better armor, again and again and again, and on and on. Mm-hmm. Hunt's thinking, okay, how do we sink this thing without worrying about the bigger guns and all the time, for which they'll just respond with better armor? And he realizes that thing is just as vulnerable under her armor belt as Richmond was when Manassas rammed it. So Hunt's thinking, how can we ram that ship without having to have a ram? Bear in mind, I think Manassas is 387 tons. The only part of her that's a weapon, except for the 64-pound gun, which is fixed on the, you know, the, the bow, and that's just for clearing the, the way. But her only weapon is that ironclad ram. Everything else is a delivery vehicle. The machinery, the armor, the crew, everything is just to get the ram on target. What if you could send that ram through the water without having to attach 387 tons of iron and crew to it? And this is what gets Hunt's thinking about the weapon he's proposing to Gideon Wells. Well, here, That's how Hunt gets involved. You mentioned in your introduction a little bit about rocket science that uh, kinetic energy, the, the force that, that will damage an enemy ship, uh, the formula is, is one-half mv squared, uh, mass times uh, velocity squared. So if you increase the mass to the size of the, the ram manassas, you get a lot of energy. But if you increase the velocity... Uh, which uh, is then squared, you you don't need that much mass. So a very small, fast-moving object could do as well as a very large, slow-moving object. And this brings right. us to the... Well, well, go ahead. It, no, no, you, you go. You, you're the expert. I want to hear this. <laughs> oh, oh, I avoid that word expert. <laughs> yeah, for, for, the, for the audience's sake, the ones we just didn't like, turn this off because we mentioned rocket science at the start and now a formula, God help us. This That's is rocket right. science. I, I really tried to make the book as palatable as possible. Uh, again, all, the, all the equations sense. are in the footnotes. You can just trust me that they're right and read the book. It, what you just said is absolutely right, though. Something moving big and slow packs a certain amount of, I guess in non-scientific terms, oomph mm-hmm. or force, if you will. Something moving small that's smaller but moving much faster can pack the same amount of velocity or oomph, if you will. So that ram is backed by 387 tons of iron, moving at about 11 knots or so. That's, a, that's a one devil of an impact. But even a lowly 12-pounder cannonball from a couple hundred yards out could puncture the average 20, 21-inch oak hull, no problem. So Manassas is very, very effective it is also wildly, wildly extravagant and inefficient because there's so much more energy there than is needed. Hunt is trying to think of a way to deliver 
something on target that will have sufficient impact without having to be backed by that much mass, if you will. What can I get that's smaller that will go a lot faster and do that or much more damage? And that's, that's the genius part of this. Well, we talked already about firing a gun underwater and the problems with that. The, the projectile loses all its, its uh, energy absorbed by the, the environment, by the water. But if you had a self-propelled uh, projectile underwater that kept going, uh, that didn't just rely on initial uh, impetus to go through the water, you'd have something. And here, uh, you, you talk in the book about rocket technology, which already exists. The British have the Congreve rockets they use in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, the Chinese have used rockets for centuries. But uh, the U.S. Navy even has a, a standard rocket, uh, I guess, used for signaling uh, at this time. Or actually is an incendiary device. Uh, believe it or not, the word rocket ship enters uh, the, the English language about the War of 1812. And we had our first rocket men or rocketeers in the Army in the Mexican War. So it's really sort of disconcerting to, to read this sort of thing about a rocket ship in 1812. The British had adopted that from the Lord of Mysore, uh, Tipu Khan, I think was his name. He fired rockets at the British uh, in about 1798 or 99. Uh, the British won that war, recognized that uh, Tipu had a wonderful weapon here, and adopted it, and Congreve took it from there. Now, one of the hallmarks of rockets, which they really didn't want to change, and this will seem odd to our audience nowadays where we expect a rocket to land on a dime, you know, 100 miles away, they wanted them to be as erratic as possible. And that seems nonsensical given our tactics nowadays, but back in this time of the Napoleonic Wars, your command and control of your troops required that they stay in a massed formation. You could see them, they could see you, you can issue instructions, the drummers and buglers could be heard, things like that. Well, if you have a cannonball that's coming towards you, troops actually got pretty adept at watching that thing come through the air, bounce on the ground, and like, okay, you guys shuffle right by two feet, we'll shuffle left. Once it rolls through, we get back together, the formation's not broken. They got good at that. A rocket, however, is something totally different. Most times they did go downrange. Even though they might have a range of several miles, they would actually strike the ground. These are called grazes, and those are calculated into the trajectory and, and effectiveness of the rocket. They would graze once or twice, but as the fuel burns out, the center of gravity changes, and the wind that it's encountering starts to push the rocket off course. So as it gets towards the enemy, it might start to corkscrew, it might shoot up, then shoot down, it might skitter left or right, it might go along the ground, and the whole time it's just spewing out copious amounts of burning flame. That alone is going to break up your troops, plus they're dodging it now, not knowing where they should dodge to. Do I zig, do I zag, where's it going to explode? The explosion itself wouldn't kill too many people, it wasn't that big a rocket, but my goodness, it would totally disrupt your troop formation. So no one really saw a need to improve on that too much. Congreve and the Americans, uh, Hale later on, experimented with attaching a long stick to it, which did help. Hale made a one that actually spun, trying to emulate uh, you know, the, the rifling of a bullet, if you will. That helped some as well. But again, no one was really pushing that hard to make them to land on X, necessarily. They wanted these things to skitter around. That was the advantage of rockets at the time. So when they tried to a, use... A, so we're going to take another ahead. short break and, and come back okay. and talk more about this and figure out how uh, E.B. Hunt figures out how you could fire a rocket underwater successfully. And we'll find out how he did that when we come back, talking with Chuck Viet. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chuck Viet, author of C Minor, Major E.B. Hunt's Civil War Rocket Torpedo, 1862-63. We've been discussing the idea of a revolutionary weapon, and there were many during the Civil War at sea, ironclads uh, among them, but the idea of a a weapon that could sink an ironclad ship by hitting it below the iron belt, below the the water line, and by 1862, Major E.B. Hunt conceives of a a rocket fired uh, from a tube underwater. This is the this is not the what is it that we talked about in the first segment. The what is it is just a wooden box, but this is what goes inside the what is it. Is that right? Exactly. What is is never anything more than a test bed. Had this weapon or when this weapon is perfected, it is planned to be basically built into every single ship in the U.S. Navy because even the smallest cutter armed with one of these could easily take on something like the monitor and sinker in one shot. Well, I, I was fascinated to read about the trials of this weapon. That they Hunt actually succeeds in getting uh, getting it built. First, they tried it, but they put a dog and gun in the the what is it, and and put the rocket in the barrel of that and, and shot it out, and that was marginally successful. But then they, they he had a purpose built torpedo tube, uh, and and they use that. And you describe the and some of the tests. The thing comes out and goes out underwater, then goes into the air and flies through the air for a while and goes back into the water. And it sounded like the flight profile of a modern sea skimmer missile, like an exocet or a harpoon uh, that just flies a few feet over the water. The enemy can cannot defend against it, can barely see it coming. And uh, you also said, if I read this right, that this had a velocity of 1,500 knots. 
Is that, is that possible? <laughs> I didn't okay. actually commit to that. I'm just saying okay. that technically by, by their, their calculations. Right. Yeah. It was, it, it was wicked fast to use an American, a Yankee expression. We <laughs> uh, like back up. I, I should reacquaint people as, as you'll remember from the book about the old story about the blind man and the elephant. Right. Because it explains why no one knows anything about C minor. In that story, very, very briefly, six blind men each touch a different part of the elephant. Mm-hmm. And because one man touches the tail, another the trunk, another the tusk, the legs, and so on, each comes away with a totally different idea of what it is they're, they're feeling or are standing in front of. And they extrapolate. So the man at the tail, having felt only it, says, oh, mm-hmm. the whole thing is like a vine. Oh, the man at the tusk says, oh, it's like spears. They're all right, and they're all totally wrong. Everyone who writes about Hunt after his death in 1863 gets a snippet, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a different aspect of the story. So, for instance, those initial trials when they use the Dahlgren, those are using undersized torpedoes. And, by the way, when I say torpedo, this is a kinetic energy projectile. It's not explosive. He's Mm -hmm. doing tests. And because of the delays over the summer of 62, which I think the Navy is basically forcing him to say, okay, there are cheaper ways to do this prove to us that our ideas or these other ideas aren't going to work. We know he tried at least three different kinds of rockets, making them in this way, trying an all-metal one, uh, going to the wooden jacket he'll eventually use, things like that. Those initial tests, which aren't conducted until January and February of 1863 under secret conditions, they would include a number of expected failures mm-hmm. because Hunt is proving to the Navy, look, I'm doing what you said. This is a cheaper way to do it. It's not working. This one is not working. That's not working. Let's try the one I recommended from the start. I think he has the original idea spot on right from the get-go. So later naval officers and civilians get wind of one or two of these or a newspaper reporter reports on it, and they conclude, okay, just like the blind man and the elephant, the thing was a failure. Mm-hmm. Hunt, you can always find, mention C minor in the history books, but it always says, oh, the weapon didn't work, the weapon didn't work. Well, the weapon does work because, for one thing, after the January and February 63 trials, Hunt makes his full-size torpedo. It's now no longer a two-foot-long rocket. It's a full 77 inches long, and it is 12 inches thick. And it's got an oak jacket around the original four-inch Navy rocket. And around that oak jacket, they have carved helical grooves, if you will, that spiral down the length of it. Now, this is actually quite brilliant on Hunt's part. Everyone who else who tried to make a rocket spin at this time has lateral vents, if you will, that force the thing to spin. So now there's an internal energy source pushing against the water. That's not working as well as what Hunt does. Hunt uses the forward thrust of the rocket, which is all coming out the stern through the, you know, mm-hmm. the fanny exhaust port, if you will. That thing's going to go through the water no matter what. As the water strikes these channels and goes down the channels, it makes the rocket spin. He has managed to mm-hmm. rifle the outside of the rocket shell so that it will rotate in the water and stay on course and stay true. The experiment you mentioned where it porpoised up into the air and everything, that's mm-hmm. great if we do it on purpose. That's one of the failed attempts with one of the smaller rockets. And but so that was, that was about, never intentional. But you, you mentioned later one of the uh, ideas that at least comes up here is that if you, in addition to hitting below the waterline, another successful attack mode would be to have it uh, fly through the air and then come straight down on the deck of an enemy ironclad, which would be less well protected. Uh, yeah, and, and reconstructing again, this. Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm saying that, that that's what you know. Modern uh, uh, pop-up profile missiles do: uh, the sea skimmers that fly at very low altitude over the sea and then 
they, they at the last minute go straight up and then straight down onto a modern warship and try to defeat its weapons that way. These are incredibly complex computer-driven things we're doing in the 21st century, and you're saying these are being thought of in 1863. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm almost positive of that. Again, in reconstructing this story, I did use the word reconstruction, but rediscover on purpose, because <laughs> you will never know the full story of Seaminer. Um, we have one civilian who worked, claimed to have worked with Hunt hand in glove throughout this. I'm not sure how closely he worked, but one thing he wrote in 1874 was telling. He said Hunt was so maniacal about secrecy that at the end of every stage of development, he destroyed all the papers, all the diagrams, all the records. He kept everything in his head. He was so worried that some foreign government would discover the secret of this weapon because it would literally revolutionize naval warfare overnight. And you have to bear in mind in the background of all this, the Confederacy is not the intended target. It's the anticipated, the expected, the known war coming with France and England in 1863. Americans at the time knew we were going to be at war with the world sooner or later. This is why this weapon is being pushed. Now, Hunt, after he, uh, again, little snippets here and there give you hints of what actually is going on. The weapon is not a failure. And the reason I say that is, after the February 63 trials, Hunt is promoted to a major. Do you promote somebody who's failed? My answer is no, you don't. What's more, he then goes on and gets continued funding, continued resources at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and in June has another demonstration. After the June demonstration, there are two key things that happen. One, the Navy signs an order to the Bureau of Ordnance to put this thing in production on July 8, 1863. The Navy is happy with their torpedo, but Hunt is still doing experiments. What is he experimenting on? To me, I believe the key is in a newspaper report that talks about the June trials, saying that the thing worked perfectly, many different evolutions were, were performed, officers of the Army Navy went with him, shots were fired to an incredible height. Okay, why is he still firing into the air? The Navy doesn't care that much about that. Also, why is the Army interested? Well, if you think back, while this is a naval weapon or a, a, a maritime weapon, if you will, the Navy's going to use it on the high seas. The Army is, is the organization that defends harbors and river mouths. It's from shore emplacements the Army wants to fire this thing. And I believe, again, no evidence except all the circumstantial stuff because everything is destroyed. I believe what Hunt is doing after the Navy signs off on the lateral launch torpedo, he is experimenting with high-angle fire, and he's creating what's called a range table. Range tables are easy to find for every cannon of the period. How much powder, how big a shot, what angle, what range, what penetration. You can find those no problem. No such thing as that exists for a rocket torpedo because no one can make it work the same way twice. Hunt, I believe, is doing that, experimenting again and again and again. Okay, how do we change this so that when we fire it from the shore at such an angle with a reduced load of powder, how far will it go Will it hit the channel just right? Because you do not want one of these things going eight miles inland, which it could easily have done. Because, yeah, the speed you mentioned, uh, it is absolutely incredible. But, uh, again, unless we're about to take a break, I can tell you how I derived that number. It, the thing goes faster than anything on the planet at the time. Well, we're, we've only got a few minutes left, unfortunately, and I, I'm almost tempted to leave uh, listeners in suspense as to how it all ends uh, and force them to buy a copy of the book, but they're going to do that anyway <laughs> because it's such an interesting story. Uh, but it, it, is, it, it is something that just doesn't, doesn't belong in the Civil War. What Hunt manages firing underwater and making an aerial missile will not be seen again until 1945 in the German Navy at the end of World War II. We will not accomplish the same thing until the Polaris program 10 years later. 
that's how far ahead of his time this fellow was. And by all, everything I could dredge up, I believe this weapon worked. But when he dies in an accident just before they sign off, there is no one to advocate or push the weapon any longer. And also the, the fears of war with England and France are slowly, you know, going away. The Navy probably figures we don't need this. What's interesting is a few years later, whenever they go and formulate or create the uh, torpedo station on Goat Island in Newport, they realize, hey, we did something in Brooklyn Navy Yard, didn't we? Let's find out what we can what we did. There are so few people around, again, blind men and the elephant. People know little snippets of this. They go looking for remnants of the what is it. They go looking for the remnants of Sea Miner, and there's basically nothing out there, a few stray facts. And the Navy starts with, you know, mimicking the Whitehead torpedo, which is, as you'd expect, it's, it's gasoline-driven, it's got an explosive warhead, things like that, and modern torpedoes develop from that. Hunt's weapon has never been replicated or duplicated. Every time someone else has tried to deal with rocket torpedoes underwater, they don't function. Hunt seems to have managed the trick in 1862. Well, it is really a remarkable story, and all the more tragic, as you point out, not just for the military technology, but for uh, his other capacities that uh, that he dies, and uh, as readers will see, it, it, it's in an accident, testing the C minor, uh, apparently, simply from forgetting to open the exterior door before you fire the weapon. Uh, yeah, and I half wonder if that wasn't a, a function of him. I, I believe after the Navy signs off on a thing and says, put it into production, and they do make mm-hmm. a number of them, uh, I believe he's doing the high-angle fire. And the standard procedure is that the what is it is partly submerged, so the torpedo tube is underwater, and mm-hmm. the procedure is to make sure the rear hatch is closed, open the front one, flood the tube, close the front one, or open the front one, fire the thing off, and then reverse it to empty out the tube. And I think that if you're doing high-angle fire, well, then you don't want the tube flooded. Is the tube angled up, and Hunt has basically mm-hmm. omitted the step of, you know, because we're not opening the hatch routinely, he doesn't realize the front one is closed. And when he fires the thing off, it basically nudges up against the front door and can't go anywhere. Now, the what is it, the, the torpedo tube is not meant to withstand all the pressure. It's more a channel to direct this thing. It should always mm-hmm. go out in a second or two, and it just bursts. And Hunt is overcome by the gases, and in trying to escape up the hatch, he up the ladder, he falls and hits his head, and he dies two days later, suffering from what's called compression and concussion of the skull. He's basically in a coma, and uh, the weapon had exploded. Uh, no one was available to rebuild the thing, despite many of his scientific friends saying, oh, you know, I can handle this. You get someone to actually do the hands-on work. There's nobody around, and his friends are just as heavily taxed as he is, unfortunately. So the weapon is never developed. Thirty years after the fact, a biographer of his, who really couldn't have known that much anyway, but still said, we're reluctant to write anything about this for fear that some foreign power will figure it out. It was considered that lethal, and it would have been. This well, thing had is... a range, I'm sorry, at, at about eight miles out, it would exhaust its fuel. And the fuel would have had it going, like we said, an incredible range. So it probably had more than an eight-mile range because at the speed it's going at, at eight miles, it could have traveled another two miles easily. And the energy that was in this torpedo was sufficient to puncture both sides of a ship, even at that range at that time. It outdistanced any gun on the planet. Well, it is just a, a remarkable story. It is uh, a fortunate in some ways, unfortunate in others, that this deadly weapon wasn't developed. But uh, one final sidebar just throw out for our listeners, uh, that, that Mrs. Hunt, 
uh, remarries, becomes Helen Hunt Jackson, and, and the author of Ramona, about uh, a novel that did for California Indians what uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin did for enslaved people in terms of publicizing their plight. Uh, she's a well-known uh, American historical figure in her own right. But overall, just a fascinating story and uh, a book with interesting diagrams, uh, illustrations. Uh, it's not overly technical. Uh, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I thought I could follow it pretty well. Uh, listeners, you will want to get a copy of C minor Major E.B. Hunt's Civil War Rocket Torpedo, 1862 to 1863. It is uh, it's published by, who is this? Uh, by you. Uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, so look up uh, uh, Chuck Viet online and get a copy of this. Uh, you will enjoy it. And Chuck, so thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me back, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.